This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Anthropology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Alex Golub, a professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and I'll be the host of the channel today. So today we're going to be talking to Elizabeth and Stephen Ferry, who are the authors of La Batea. So Elizabeth and Stephen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for having us. So, uh, you know, when I was in graduate school, I went to the University of Chicago where the Komarovs were teaching. And one of the things that made them the most uncomfortable was when people assumed that they were siblings and and that Jean and John Komarov were not just married, which is what they were. So we should just say right away for people who are wondering, you folks are siblings. You're This is a brother and sister team that's worked together to, to write this book. And um, the topic of the book is... Uh, artisanal gold mining in Latin America, and sort of a, a bunch of other things around it. So one of the ways I'd like to get started is to ask you guys a little bit about your careers and how you ended up working on this project. You, you Is this the first time you folks have worked together? You have each independent careers, is that right? Um, that's right, Alex. Um, so we um, both have been working in Latin America for some time, and um, both of us, uh, for reasons that may be deep in our psyche, um, became drawn to doing uh, to studying mining. So um, Stephen has a has prior work on mining, and and I've been working on mining, especially in Mexico, for um, since the 1990s. So this is the first thing that we've done together. And Elizabeth, you're a professor of anthropology at Brandeis, correct? That's right. And Stephen, you are your um, your website says that you're a nonfiction journalist, uh, a photographer. Um, so you're outside the academy. Yeah, I've been working sort of in the photojournalism field since the mid '80s, um, and. Um, my work is largely concentrated on Latin America. I've lived in Colombia for almost 20 years. And as Elizabeth mentioned, um, quite a bit of the work I've done over the years has had to do with mining and resource extraction. Well, I don't want to put you guys on the spot too much about your personal lives, but it is it is quite something you both ended up in Latin America and doing mining. I know, Elizabeth, your original work was in Mexico. That's right. How did you, do you, do you know what it is that that, that got you guys both interested in such similar topics? It seems uh, like a uh, interesting coincidence. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I never quite know how to answer this uh, question. It certainly occurred to me before. Um, I would say that, uh, so Stephen is older than I am and um, was involved in the um, Central America Solidarity Movement in the 1980s. And that was kind of the beginning of my political awakening. So that certainly was partly what drew me to um, Latin America, I would say. Um, but then again, lots of people were drawn to Latin America and aren't continuing to work on it, you know, over 30 years later. Um, in terms of the mining, I don't know, so, but Stephen, what do you think? Uh, why are we both so interested in mining? I've tried to, I've tried to kind of tease out an answer. Um, I mean, there are a couple of sort of like objective reasons, I think, which is um, uh, both Elizabeth and I are very interested in the role that history plays and 
you cannot separate Latin American history from the history of mining. Um, so, you know, in, in the work that she's done in Mexico, for instance, uh, you know, the role of silver mining and the history of it is, is fundamental. And, and I first started looking at, um, my first book is called I Am Rich Potosi, The Mountain That Eats Men, which is about the history of silver mining in, in Potosi, Bolivia, which was both the greatest source of silver for Europe in history um, and it was the focal point of the um, essentially a s enslavement of the Andean populations of the region and 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 the destruction of a great deal of those those cultures at the time um, so um, you know one could say it's looking at mining but that's almost synonymous with say with saying you're looking at history yeah. Mm. Um, I think I, I don't know if you agree with this, Stephen, or, or you, Alex, since you also study mining. Um, I have, one of the things that's always drawn me to, to mining is I've always been interested in um, occupations that kind of include, you know, organization in space, that include cosmologies, that include gender relations, um, kinship relations that have a really um, kind of formatting quality of, of all of life. Um, and because of, you know, the combination of factors, the way that the way that mining happens, the way that capital is set up in mining corporations, um, structures of colonialism, mining is one of the things that that kind of tends to work that way. So that's one of the, you know, kind of gripping questions that that has always attracted me. You know, um, as someone who studies mining in Papua New Guinea, my feeling has always been when you go there, it's it's the story. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's what's shaping people's lives. And it's obviously important to them. I, Stephen, I kind of I, I find myself in agreement with your point. You know, it, it's it's such an important part of life there that it, it's it's the thing to to get interested in and it's so it's tied up with everything else like elizabeth you're saying it's mm -hmm. it's tied up in in the family and all and and not just contemporary you know configurations of political economy or culture or whatever but also it's it's so rooted in the history right right yeah and you think of those like in in Papua new guinea right those the, they're a python a whole set of things about a python and a bunch of spirits that control the gold. Yeah. In, in Porgera, where I work, people yeah. think that there's a, a Python called Kupiane who, who they attribute to the, to being the origin of the gold. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, um, so that's, there is a sort of, they've kind of attached a cosmology to it, but, but there's a much briefer history of encounter with metal because people didn't really use metal until, you know, really until the sixties. Uh, mm -hmm. in, in Porgera, the 1960s, not the mm -hmm. right. 1560s. Yeah. yeah. So th th that incredible time depth of Latin America is always what is so surprising to me. Uh, that's one of the big differences. Yeah. Let, let me throw out a, an idea that I'd be interested to hear what Elizabeth thinks. Um, both she and I were very interested um, philosophically in, in phenomenology as a, as a philosophical tradition, which Mm -hmm. um, speaks about kind of the meaning of our, of, it, it emphasizes materiality a lot. You know, it speaks mm -hmm. about kind of the way in which our five senses apprehend the world in immediate material mm -hmm. contact with the right. world. The encounter right. between the body and the world. Yeah. Um, and there's something about mining and certainly when we did La Batea, we, I think we both were thinking a lot about this sort of intriguing way in which um, humans work with materials. And that's very, it's very physical. It's very direct. It requires a lot of skill. Um, it requires, you know, a great deal of, of physical expertise and all. Um, but then there's also layers of mythology and thought and, and kind of immaterial human activity that goes on simultaneously. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just sort of interesting to, to think about 
those how those two things happened at the same time. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that was one of the motivations, I think, for doing the book. You know, both of us have written books before or, or made books before and for doing La Bate in the way that we did it by sort of bringing in these um, different materials and by kind of provoking a certain kind of engagement with the reader and the viewer that um, tried to, you know, not reproduce by any means, but somehow gesture towards some of that um, uh, relationship between the material and the, the cosmological or the ideational. Yeah, we should we should um, turn to the book specifically. I I really take uh, your point that there's just something very existential that cuts to sort of the heart of the human experience of the world mm-hmm. when you're using your own body to, to pry rock out of something. It's such an unyielding substance, or it can be. Mm-hmm. So trying to get people closer to that sort of embodied nature is central. And if people take a look at La Batea, it's done in a cardboard cover. Uh, and there's actually, there's a, La Batea is Spanish for, uh, would you say a, like a pan or a trough that miners use? How yeah, would you describe like, what a batea is? It's like a wooden mining pan. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the book itself sort of has a stylized image of that, I think. And then in the center, there's a little picture of gold. There's a little bit of gold leaf. So there's some actual gold in the middle of the picture of the batea on the cover of the book. Mm-hmm. And the, the book itself is on, um, I don't know how you would describe the paper. It's a is porous it? paper with with a kind of very specific and and I think very it's it's a pleasing but it's, it's you know it's sort of an, an attention calling texture that makes the experience of using the book you know it calls attention to the tactile experience of using the book uh, mm. and mm-hmm. I have to say you know I was. I'm kind of obsessive about this stuff. I cannot tell you how many little paper shops in Bogota I went to how many times over and over again looking for the right paper. (laughs) I love it. it I love it. It was month. Yeah. Um, Similarly, the cardboard on the cover is chosen. It's, 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 a craft cardboard, which is, you know, a generic kind of cardboard. But within that family of craft, you find lots of different textures. And I spent a whole lot of time looking for just, you know, the one that I felt would feel right. Oh, that's so cool. And the um, the font that's used for the headers and the page numbers and the table of contents is a, is a typewriter font. So it also has, I don't know, it, it kind of, it, it feels kind of like maybe old school or more, analog or less less digitally produced when you look at this book you don't feel like it was printed on demand by some unity university press that has a contract with a giant book printing machine in some basement somewhere yeah um there's a further aspect to that which is uh almost all the pictures in the book were shot on film um for a couple reasons one is that i i use films that have very specific grain um, and in the black and white pictures, the, the book has both color and black and white photographs. The black and white pictures are, are a very grainy film, which is then developed in a specific developer, which is called Rodinal. Um, it's now marketed as Adox, but it's a developer which, which reveals a very large but a very crisp, very, very sharply defined grain. Um, that, has to, and the, that grain is our silver particles, right? You know, film is light sensitive because it has silver in it. Um, So that has a couple of meanings. One is, you know, that one is to emphasize texture again. Uh, Mm. And secondly, because silver is mined pretty much identically as gold. It's often found in the same veins or next to each other in mines. And we wanted to demonstrate by that that our book is not separate from its subject matter. Right, that it's sort of implicated in a sense. Yeah, if it's it, composed literally. Well, if it weren't for the work of miners, the book wouldn't exist. You know, um, it contains it's made of metal. Yeah. Um, yeah. If I can say a little bit about the font, because that was actually a, 
was a sort of significant moment in Stephen and my conversation, and I think it it revealed what it's like for a for a journalist and an anthropologist to work together to some extent because um, we had a lot of discussions, um, uh, occasionally heated about the font, um, and they sort of turned on. Um, Alex, you will be familiar with the capacity of anthropologists to sort of. Um, you know, constantly be wanting to put quotation marks around things and and extremely wary of anything that might look like either romanticizing or fetishizing. And clearly in the case of gold, that's, you know, going to be an issue. Um, and so I was, I was, um, had a lot of strong feelings about what the font would be and to what extent we would make reference to artisanality that wouldn't sort of fall too much in that direction. Um, and then, you know, Stephen, you can correct me, um, but you know I think on Stephen's uh, side, part of his perspective was like, well, we want also people to know what we're talking about and read it and sort of get a clear message from it. And you know, um, if you're constantly sort of qualifying and and sort of setting yourself at a distance from your subject matter in order to kind of preserve your um, stance of critique, you um, you know, might might risk losing that audience. So we had a lot of, you know, and there there actually were some compromises that kind of went along with that, and, and specifically about the font. Yeah, I, go ahead, Stephen. Yeah. Well, just to sort of the the point is is at least to us it was really it was important to both of us, and it, I think we came to a good resolution. But it might be worth drawing it out, you know, explaining a little bit. The, as as you mentioned the font is kind of a typewriter font it's a it's not american typewriter it's another font that's based on you know looks like an old typewriter and it looks like a typewriter that hasn't been um well maintained it's kind of a slightly broken up font it's got accidents in it um and so like you know the letters don't line up quite evenly um and elizabeth's concern was that we're like we're pretending to be more artisanal than we really are and you know like she said that kind of that you know we had a sort of shorthand for this which was like when you see on a menu in a in a in a bougie restaurant sometimes they talk about steel cut fries you know like this is sort of the art this is artisanal food and then you know but yeah sort of far from artisanal in a way yeah. um so that was kind of our shorthand for that kind of trap of like tending to be artisanal more than we really are somehow. Um, and so we came to a compromise, which is that we lined up the, we adjusted the letters on the title of the book because that's the only place where the font is actually larger than it would be if it were an actual typewriter. Um, and where the irregularities of the font would be much more evident, so it would look sort of almost flintstone -y. And Elizabeth was quite right to feel uncomfortable because it would it would be kind of like, you know, fake rustic or something like this. Right, um, right. But so I we, think that, you know, huh? that sort of translates into other kinds of questions, which, you know, I think are maybe of interest to anthropologists as well about kind of how um, when you're working with a group of people with whom you have a political alignment, um, and you're also, you know, working as an anthropologist and you have a, have a professional audience. I mean, another kind of moment when this came up was, was uh, uh, the, the miners in Marmato, which is one of the cases in the book, um, they described themselves as traditional miners. Um, now, traditional is a word that, like, gives anthropologists the vapors. Um, so, you know, like, like we had a whole conversation about, you know, do we put quotation marks around traditional or, but, you know, they're, that's, they're calling themselves traditional miners and it's within this particular political context and, um, you know, exactly where are we aligning ourselves with that? So there, there was a lot of interesting questions for me that came up in, in doing the book in this way. You know, you guys want to emphasize that it's not too artisanal, but, you know, when you talk about the kerning and the tracking on the on the font on the cover that that sounds really artisanal to me i mean i yeah. think the the enormous amount of of thought that went into the book is itself 
is sort of amazing. I, I'll, I'll just share with you, I, when I look at this font, I sort of, um, it, it reminds me, it's just a couple of steps away from the 1990s grunge album font. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it looks like it could be like on a Pearl Jam album cover or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, there's a map in there, which um, that same font is used on top of the map. Um, and it's a little bit of a, you know, I mean, design does this. If it works, it it conveys a kind of atmosphere without you noticing it's it's artifice, right? It's you know, right. it just it just happens, um, and so we're hoping that's the case. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's true that the films were developed by hand. Um, it's true that photography, particularly analog photography, is a kind of work that has been largely superseded by the digital world. Um, and that requires a kind of attention. I mean, one of the things that, that we emphasized um, when kind of drawing a distinction between what you could call artisanal mining and, and kind of modern large-scale mining practices or, or the time, the, the time factor mm-hmm. that, you know, in the places, the communities that we, that we visited when we spent time uh, in Colombia, um, the people generally have an attitude, which is that we're taking gold out little by little. And it's important that there be gold left for our children and their children and their children. And these are communities that have been doing that have been practicing mining for centuries. Um, some of them are communities that are descendants of, of enslaved people. Others are uh, descendants of indigenous people who were mining in, even before the Spaniards arrived um, and other mining communities that have a long history. Um, compared to that, the, the large-scale multinational companies that were projecting projects in these areas have the intention, in many cases, of getting all the gold out in a matter of decades. And going at it in a highly mechanized, um, <clears throat> highly efficient, modern way that would satisfy, you know, the interests of their shareholders and, in the short term, um, but leave nothing in the ground afterwards. Yeah. Um, so in some ways, the design of the book and the use of film is also uh, a reflection of a kind of practice that takes its time. Yeah. And, oh, Elizabeth, Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say we had one um, uh, one of the chapter titles. Um, so we we wrote the book in Spanish and in English, and it was simultaneously published in both Spanish and English. Um, we hired a the you know person to help us correct, make sure the Spanish was perfect. Um, but um, we uh, one of the chapter titles is called in Spanish. Um, sin asoge. Asoge is another word for mercury. Spanish word. I mean, there's the word mercurio, but it's a word that means mercury. Um, but the expression sin asoge in, in Spanish in Colombia is an idiom that means like uh, taking your time. Um, so we thought that was a great title because it, it both, you know, that chapter, in fact, did occur with, uh, did have to do with um, um, miners, alluvial miners who didn't use mercury. But also, it kind of evoked this this slower kind of mentality, and and because there wasn't a an idiom in English that really worked that way, um, the English um, title of the chapter was "Slow Gold," kind of to invoke the slow food um, movement. So, mm-hmm. I've tried to evoke that. So, you had it published in two different languages, and you kickstarted it as well. Is that true? Yep. We, uh, we, I mean, we got, you know, we, we funded our own work through different ways through, you know, grants from Brandeis and other things on my side, um, because I was simultaneously doing other work as well on mining in Colombia and Stephen got jobs to do, uh, news stories. Um, but to produce the book, we, we, um, got the majority of funding from, a from a Kickstarter program. I mean, campaign. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? 
you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I also had a grant from something called the Magnum Foundation, um, which was also important to do the field work. But in order to raise the money, you know, in, in today's economy, first of all, it's very difficult to find a publisher who will put up the money to publish a photographic book because the costs are higher than a book that's just text, obviously. Um, but also, in order to have the kind of control over the process that we wanted, um, you kind of have to do the whole thing. And, uh, you know, we have publisher, you know, there's a publishing house in Columbia that represents the book and also uh, in English in the United States, and they're, you know, serious publishing houses. But, but you know, we did the, the design and we were responsible for getting it printed and getting it bound and, and all the details. Um, so in order to be able to do that, we, we mounted a Kickstarter campaign. And it was it's an actually good model because the majority of the money we collected on the Kickstarter campaign was simply a pre-sale of the book. So yeah. if you like, if you cost it out, if you can pre-sell, the book costs $50 in English. If you pre-sell 300 of them, you're, you're pretty much good to go. A little less than that. Mm-hmm. So how did you, so is this something we should all be doing? Should we all be kickstarting books? Did you, is, having gone through this process, do you think this would be good for, for academics or non-academics to, to pursue? I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed it. And it, it, you know, it does go back to a sort of 19th century um, kind of subscription model of publishing. Um, and I don't know a lot about it, but I do know, for instance, that, um, a number of Mark Twain's books were published on this model where you, you basically, um, uh, you know, you sign up for it in advance and, um, it's a little bit like, um, a CSA, uh, share in, uh, you know, community supported agriculture, a little bit of that model. Um, it was, uh, I don't really know the answer to whether it would exactly replace the, um, university press model. Um, but I think it does. And that, you know, the, the neoliberal implications are clearly there, but, um, it, uh, it definitely did give us the capacity to, um, work together in a different way to, to be imaginative, to kind of do what we wanted and to develop a, to develop a little bit of an audience. Did you guys have like, you know, gifts of, unlocked stretch goals and all that kind of stuff that I, I normally associate Kickstarter with like technology. Mm-hmm. Um, we had uh, photographs of Stevens. So the book was kind of the basic one. And then we had photographs of Stevens and um, other books of ours, other books of ours. So you could buy like a package of, of uh, fairy works of fairy and fairy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The other part of that was that, um, this work is available in Spanish for the equivalent of 20 bucks. Actually, it, in Colombia, it's a little bit less, like $16. Um, for a book that's, you know, a well-printed photographic book, that's a very good price. And um, that was important because, you know, most people that we would, you know, most people in Colombia don't have much more than that to buy books. Um, you know, most many people don't even have that, but... But at least in order to 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 allow for greater access to the book, it's important to keep the price down. And it also brought the price to a point where um, the public library system of the country could purchase the thirteen hundred copies, and those were just those are in public libraries in thirteen hundred places around Colombia, including many mining. Yeah, I think you're cutting in and out there a little bit, Stephen. Uh, I'm going to take this opportunity to say that we should cut in at some point that the book is $40 in, in the United States, not 50 Oh, whoops. Um, <laughs> progressive, pro- progressive pricing. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I just wanted to say that by making sure the price was um, reasonable, very reasonable in Colombia, um, it, it was at a point where the public library system in the country bought 1,300 copies and distributed them to that number of libraries 
many of those libraries are in mining regions. Um, so that was, that was satisfying to us. It was important to us that the book, you know, be distributed around the country and that people in general have access to it. Hmm. And the book itself, when you, when you pick it up and you look at it, the structure of it is that there's a short introductory text and then there's a series of pictures of the text, or maybe the text is of the, of the photographs. So it's, it's not a book which is uh, unbalanced in one way or the other, where it's mostly text with one or two pictures. And it's also not a series of photographs with, you know, just a little bit of, of, with captions, basically. It's really, it feels relatively evenly split to me. Is that, is that right? Yeah, and that was that was definitely um, a big something that we spent a lot of time talking about, and um, that was very important to us. We wanted to have a book that, um, and in some ways, I would say maybe there's sort of three, you know, streams: the the design, the text, and the photographs um, that are kind of running concurrently. And as you say, that that the text is not, um, you know, extended captions. And the photographs are not the illustrations of the text. Um, and that, you know, of course, implied negotiations at particular points. Um, <laughs> is that is that polite for something, Elizabeth? <laughs> uh, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, but um, in a good in a way, it's good to, you know, be have your sibling be your co-author because, you know, you don't have to worry if you fight about your book that, you know, things are going to go really south because, you know, you have a lifetime of fighting and getting over it to uh, behind you. Right. Um, so uh, well, can I can I ask you about that, though? I mean, I think that that speaks to to your own, um, you know, relatively healthy relationship. I I imagine there's a lot of people who could try to co-author something with their siblings or with their their spouses or their parents where they might not have the kind of strong connection that could, that could handle that kind of conflict. So I, you know, I, I mean, I think I should uh, give you folks some kudos for, for having a relationship that can bear that kind of weight. Um, yeah, I think, it, I think it was great. And it was, I mean, Stephen, you can say what you think, but uh, it, it, it made it stronger too. You know, I mean, it was such a great experience too to work together. It's a way in which we hadn't, we'd, we'd spent time, you know, traveling and in Latin America and living in other places as well as here, of course, but, um, to kind of be able to work together, um, yeah, was a great experience. And I would say it sort of strengthened our, strengthened our sibling bond as well. There's that. And also, I mean, I was just very conscious of the value that Elizabeth brings to the project because, First of all, as you know, she she knows mines and miners, and she just works really well in those environments. Um, and like, just has so many kind of uh, such a deep knowledge of what kind of questions to ask and so on, what kind of conversations to have. Um, for one thing, and also Elizabeth is very good on, you know, which is I guess part of anthropology but is very clear about has thought a lot about representation and the pitfalls of it and, and the politics of it and all this stuff um and maybe in the world of journalism we don't think enough about that um and the issue of mining um as i'm sure you know alex i'm sure you encounter this a lot but it certainly artisanal mining in in latin america and colombia in particular is a really traded conflictive topic and language is used the fights over who gets access to gold and control of territory um between local communities and and large companies for example um and the state are mm-hmm. fought on the in the terrain of language a lot of the time um mm-hmm. So yeah. there's a lot of misrepresentation. There's a lot of tendentious representation, both in words and in pictures, of the small-scale miner. Um, mm-hmm. And Elizabeth is very strong on kind of like seeing how that happens and and helping keep keeping us clear about, you know, what we're saying. Um, 
So that was really, you know, that's part of what I think makes the book work. And Elizabeth, can I ask you, do you have a background in photography? Had you done field work before where you were taking photographs? Uh, um, I mean, how much did you know sort of about that end? I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not a very good photographer. Um, and I'm, but I know a lot about photography because I've grown up with Stephen and I um, am generally interested. Um, Stephen actually did the photographs for my first book, in, uh, which came from my dissertation. Um, and had, we had a really, that's actually one of the, one of the sort of, you know, you have those days in your life that you kind of remember forever that the, the trip that we did down in the mine that's kind of resulted in those photographs was really an, an important day for me. Um, so I've definitely thought about it a lot and, and I'm very drawn to projects that use photography. Um, and, and also Stephen and I have had a lot of excuse me, conversations um, about just these things, you know, these questions of representation and, and, you know, um, Stephen, you uh, are, you know, like you, you write these blog posts that are incredibly uh, in your, your, your modesty is, is, is honorable, but you have lots of ways in which you're thinking about representation at this really um, specific and I, I'll use the word granular level in both its senses, right? Because even questions about what is the grain of the of the film coming into the uh, these issues about truth and how it gets told and what's you know seen as um, um, seen as what what comes to be taken for granted or comes to be um, uh, stand in in a certain way and not another way is something that. Um, you know, there's a whole lot to say about that phot photographically. Um, and in some ways it's, um, you know, there's a way in which you can kind of, academic writing ends up having a lot of palaver about stuff that people can sort of say in other ways much more um, succinctly and, and immediately. So. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. I. I appreciate a lot of the reflexivity of anthropology, and I'm in a reading group right now with with sociologists where we read um, ethnographic sociology and and uh, uh, anthropological ethnography. And mm -hmm. I'm always struck by the difference between the two of us. They're they're great guys, but I'm I'm much happier being an anthropologist than I am a sociologist. Uh -huh. <laughs> at the at the same time, you know, you're being recorded. It, it can't get to be a bit much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, exactly. At the same time, it's sort of like, all right, already we get it. So had you both you had you both done you know sort of air quotes field work at the same time where you'd been documenting things together before or was this the first project where you were both on the ground together and one person had the notebook and the other one had the camera and then mm -hmm. the other one got their camera and the other one got their notebook um except for this one time that that I mean I guess it was I don't know if we went to the mine only once but you were there for a little while um Stephen in Mexico um yeah, that was about a week, but, you know, I... Yeah. That was the but, only other time. Yeah. yeah. Um, we did spend a lot of time wandering around 1970s Chicago, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, which was, you know, had its somewhat, you know, dilapidated industrial phase that I think was maybe underlying some of these adventures. Is that where you guys grew up? So it was kind of like a, a, yeah. a return there, or did you just happen to decide to wander through... No, I mean, when we, were children, when we were children, uh, Stephen and I, like, wandered around alleys and, and climbed up concrete things and stuff. I don't know if you remember this, Stephen. But I don't sure. Remember it. sure. Yeah. Um, there's another part to all this which might be worth mentioning. Um, I was, frankly, a little nervous that that Elizabeth would write in what would feel to me like it's – too academic a way for this book mm -hmm. um, because, you know, um, there, there is language that is appropriate and right for, you know, I don't know if the right word is sort of highly technical or kind of very, 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 you know, for an anthropologist audience um, that's not necessarily so yeah. designed for the general reader. Um and so I was a little worried about that. Um, and at the same time, I was, I was struggling with 
what language to use visually. Um, both Elizabeth and I, and there's a bunch of implications to this, but both of us were kind of thinking, okay, how can we get out of our normal kind of comfort zones to deal with this topic? Um, I, I was particularly interested in trying to make pictures that would get at, and here Elizabeth and I had a lot of debates too, but um, I would maybe call it the metaphysical aspect of gold and mercury. Um, mm -hmm. Just like the really funky, mythical, you know, to me, in that words cannot, or rational terms can't really get around how extraordinary these materials are. Um, kind of an amazement. And. You, you uh -huh. You know, I'm I'm often uh, I'm often asked by people who who uh, are just sort of middle class people in developing countries who are sort of removed from some of the existential work that goes on to make their lives possible, and they say, "Why is gold so valuable? What is it about gold?" And I just say, "Like, have you seen it? <laughs> it's 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 a remarkable substance. If you go to the British Museum, they have a you know some Anglo-Saxon hoard, and it's a bunch of." incredibly dull wood and metal and then this like shining mask that just pops out in this right. unbelievable way and i think you have one of the um pre-columbian uh pieces of gold work that's illustrated at the mm -hmm. beginning here if you've ever seen if any of the listeners have ever seen those pieces they're just they're the the qualia the the physical and material qualities of the object are remarkable oh i mean gold is very important in in rituals of romance and marriage in many cultures. It's very important in, in sacred rites in many cultures and in, in many pre-Columbian cultures and still in Latin American indigenous societies, it's understood to be the sun. Um, gold also denotes, you know, excellence in sports. It's, it's you know, mm -hmm. you see athletes when they win a medal, there's the, the sort of cliche shot of like athletes biting the thing because they're, they're showing that it's gold. Um, and that, so it's not something else. It's gold. This is a gold medal. Um, so I was trying to find, you know, within the idiom of photojournalism, how to get at this, you know, the stuff that goes way beyond facts somehow. Um, and talking about this a lot with Elizabeth and like what language we're going to use. And, and, and I think you'll say Elizabeth, but you know, many of the, written parts, you know, we wrote the book together, but many of the most poetic, I think all the really poetic sections of the book, which do express um, experiences that aren't quantifiable, they aren't part of sort of traditional social science, I guess, uh, were written by her. Um, and so one of the challenges we faced were like kind of how to blend or how to relate Images and texts that, while they may be powerful and striking, and everything they're you know they they're about informing. Um, right. With other parts that are more poetic and they're kind of like in a different register. Yeah, we yeah. had uh, more more kind of you could call them you know journalistic or just kind of like essay kind of format, and then some others that were more lyrical in a sense. And the, the pictures themselves, the photographs are composed in a way that the viewer can see what life is like there and what is going on. I don't want to get too hung up on sort of distinctions of documentation or art or anything like that. But, but the, the viewer can see what life is like there when they look at the pictures, as opposed to some forms of photography, which try to have a, a give you a much stronger emotional reaction, but just sort of end up being like a blurred picture of someone's head or, mm -hmm. you know, the stars at night are really, especially with digital photography are super blown up. And then there's all this, you know, uh, sort of uh, blurry under blurry stuff underneath, which is great for sort of affect and atmosphere, but, but don't give you a sense of what you would see if, if you went there. And I, I thought that it was really interesting in this book, how, some of the images, especially the images um, that were close-up shots of 
uh, working gold or just the, the object itself melting in a crucible or in the bottom of the pan, often those would be much less visually realistic and would have a, a lot of, um, I'm not a, I'm not a image person, but have a lot more what I would think of as like, um, distortion or something like that. Whereas the, the pictures that of people where it was pulled back and you could take in a whole social scene, they're very powerful images. I mean, you have images of, of, um, riot police and uh, people with guns and people in conflict. Um, and they're very powerful, but you never lose the sense that these are particular people in particular places. They're not generic icons that are meant to evoke images from people. I, I like that about yeah. the book. Yeah, yeah. And and I think Stephen is really is really gifted at doing that. And we try to also um, kind of do that in the text as well, in the sense that there are real people in the text, you know, who, who say they're, you know, uh, tell about their lives or, or say their opinion, or we, we kind of document a, a meeting that we had with them so that there is a sense of these, um, you know, this kind of living ongoing place, um, rather than kind of, we're representing the types of small scale mining, something like that. Right. So that's, and that obviously is ethnographic, right. That comes from ethnography. I know for my book, um, my first book, or I guess maybe my second book, the first one published in the United States, um, there was some interest in the part on the publisher of me providing, you know, pictures of mud smeared, naked black bodies toiling away in pits. I think all of us who study mining recognize on the one hand, that's what a lot of it is like. But on the other hand, that conveys to the sort of, uh, especially the sort of white collar first world reader, a, a set of assumptions, especially when they're just generic bodies that yep. you don't really, you don't want to fall into that, the history of those kinds of images and those discourses. Right. That sort of representation of abjectness. And yeah, I often find it, it's strange to me that in some ways, like small scale or artisanal miners, people somehow seem free to talk about them in ways that they would talk about almost no other group of workers, you know, almost any other kind of workers, you know, let's say something like sex workers, right? You people would immediately say, well, you know, both, you know, you need to show these as rounded human people and also they're working within certain kinds of structures and so on. But somehow with mining, there still seems to be this capacity to sort of just show things in very flat terms. I One of the things, go ahead. Yes, Stephen, tell me. Sorry. Um, I don't really know how to say this anyway, but I, I have a little bit of a theory about that, which is <clears throat> I think that gold mining in particular, there's, I think there's a particular problem, which is that um, many of the conflicts that are expressed in the, in the literature around gold mining, not necessarily on the ground, but in the literature about it, um, represent ideologies that that don't take into account the real experience of of certainly small-scale gold miners in in that for instance you know on the ecological side of the equation there's this kind of like guilty feeling like you know gold mining is necessarily a bad activity um and that it's kind of like you know conflict diamonds and that you know rich people are adoring themselves with these luxury goods without paying, without caring about the abject conditions in which mining takes place. That's kind of one set of right. ideas. Right. And then the, on yeah. the other side of the equation, you have people are sort of like, you know, um, representing the cap capitalist point of view of like, you know, this is great for markets and there's a lot of money to be made quickly. And they're also not paying attention to the miners. Um, yeah. You know, so there's another way of looking at all this, which is, you know, Mining is necessary. Mining is necessary. It's a fundamentally human activity, and everything we do in just about every society involves some use of metals that have been mined. Um, and, you know, there just seems to be a sort of knee-jerk set of beliefs around mining yeah. that are out there that get then expressed in pictures, for instance, where you... I can't tell you how many photographs there are of of miners in South America showing kind of in a garish way their gold capped tooth and glaring at the camera like they're some sort of weird right. criminal 
devil being. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, here, this is one of the things that Stephen and I um, probably aren't quite in the same place with. Um, I, I think mining is necessary, but I also, uh, I mean, I don't know if we're not in the same place, but um, I think even if you're going to have a very broad-based critique of extractivism, you still, um, you know, the way in which it kind of, there's a certain like, um, yeah, like this sort of electric sort of um, fear and aversion around saying anything about any miners that would be, you know, at all um, valorizing their activities. Um, and again, just coming back to in ways in which we would find you know, there's lots of ethnographies about people who are in, you know, drug markets or other things that we recognize are extremely damaging on the on the macro level that recognize that people are complex beings and that they have, you know, multiple kinds of motivations and that they're, you know, lovely dimensions to their interactions, even within this economy. And but if you if you, you know, you start to say that about artisanal miners, people get all like tisk tisky at you because you're, you know, then you're supposedly condoning it or something. Well, I think that there's, um, you know, anthropologists and I think academics and many other um, sort of um, liberal elites, as the uh, Republicans would say, mm-hmm. um, have this sort of um, morality sometimes, which tends to be a little bit simplified and laundry list, like. They're pro the environment and they're pro the poor. And then the poor are destroying the environment and then they don't know what to do because (laughs) they just have a list of stuff that they're for and against. And if any, and if it ever gets more complicated than that, then they suddenly don't have moral intuitions because they don't, they don't have a, a deeper set of commitments that's generating those final positions. They just have sort of the laundry list and uh, being exposed to like the existential reality of, you know, killing animals before you buy them in the store and eat them or, you know, doing the work, dislodging the earth so that you can have, you know, gold, which is, uh, I guess in some sense, superfluous to life, but copper or iron, the the things that are in your own body or make up your phone or your car or your building. You know, I think sometimes faced with that kind of politics, people don't really know where to go. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, you know, ethnography is the way out of that bind, right? So in some ways, anthropologists are better off than many in that they, they're, they're good at sort of looking at close, let, let's look closer at people's lives um, and see this. But um, mining is still some, a place in which that, that happens a little bit less. And I don't know if you agree, Alex. But... Well, I have, um, I have my own strong opinions. <laughs> I, I think that there's a certain genre of ethnography, or maybe not, I don't have anyone in particular that I'm, I'm thinking of here, but I think there's a certain impulse in anthropology today, maybe kind of around sort of people who want to do Anit Singh style stuff, but are not Anit Singh, or some of the infrastructure people where they're like, hey, do you know where your food comes from? Or, mm-hmm. hey, do you know how your electricity gets generated? Mm-hmm. And it's sort of meant to be a, a revelation. Mm-hmm. And I, I often find, you know, many of my students in Hawaii uh, work jobs uh, or they come from middle class or working class families. And I've occasionally tried to teach ethnographies about, you know, the global supply chain. And mm-hmm. they all know that there's that the price doubles, you know, between the time it comes into the store and they sell it to you. Mm-hmm. So I think it does speak to a certain kind of class position where people find that stuff you know, novel or interesting or amazing. That's very uh, interesting. Yeah. 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 So I think, Stephen, I think that that's one of the great things about um, the perspective of a non-academic is you're just like, you know, you can kind of skip all that and be like, yeah, man, I've been there. These people do this every day. That's where they get their money. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's that. And I I was just, I mean, when I started working on gold issues, I'd come from a long experience working on the Colombian armed conflict and it when gold reached its high price at the end of 2011 which has now been surpassed just recently but um, uh, armed groups in Colombia began to finance their 
their their wars with with gold and there was a kind of boom in in journalism to look at kind of conflict gold mm-hmm. um, and and I did some work for the New York Times and for National Geographic for other outlets looking at this and and I began to feel you know there's a tremendous stigma against these small scale miners. Mm-hmm. And there's an assumption out there that at least in Colombia, there's an assumption. And I would say beyond Colombia where that all of this work is, is involved in criminality. And if it's not involved in criminality, it's automatically destroying the environment and all of it is bad. Mm-hmm. And that anybody who speaks well of gold mining is kind of like a tool of, you know, of big capitalism or something. And actually, you know, Elizabeth and I went to many communities where the people are working in sustainable ways, um, particularly in, in Afro-Colombian and indigenous areas of the country, um, where they sustain and, and reproduce their communities as they have for centuries through gold mining activity, and where they're engaged in very um, important struggles to defend their territory and their way of life against, you know, the interests of either armed groups or multinational companies that are interested in their gold. Um, And what happens in those communities is totally unlike the kind of stereotypes that circulate a lot in the press about small scale gold miners. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Well, I think one of the great things about this book is that it, it gives people a chance to read um, text about this and also see the images. And then I, I also liked your point about how the design was sort of another part of the book. They can they can just get knocked a little bit out of their everyday experience of a book by, by picking up and, and reading this book in terms of the way that it's designed. So I, I could talk with you guys forever. This is absolutely fascinating. If I'm ever allowed to travel again, I'd love to buy you all a beer and, and talk more about mining. But I know you folks yeah. have, have stuff to do. So I don't want to keep you for too long. Before we go, do you guys have any uh, projects or works that you guys want to share with the audience about what you're working on next? Elizabeth? Uh, yeah, so I'm um, sort of coming to the end of research about um, that's putting together gold um in mining uh, places, including, and one of the places is one of the towns that we really focused on in the book, which is Marmato in Colombia. And the other one is a town called El Cubo in Mexico. Um, So sort of seeing gold um, in these mining localities and then looking at it, not exactly as a chain as we were just discussing, but more sort of side by side with gold as an object in finance. So half of the book is about... um, is mostly interview-based with fund managers and commodities researchers and, um, you know, different people in gold markets. Um, And the other half is uh, with miners and, um, you know, people in mining localities. And the the topic is really about kind of what is, um, you know, gold as a physical object, uh, how people interact with it, and also how people sort of use it to create futures and to argue about futures. And in some ways I'm trying to, you know, I certainly come out of this commodity chain um, tradition and I, and I benefit a lot from that and, and find a lot of that work um, tremendously generative, but also um, sort of what if we kind of look at the sort of uh, miners and financiers, both as intellectual and cultural protagonists sort of, side by side in the, within the artificial confines of the book um, and, and kind of see what that looks like and see how they're using gold. So that's what I'm looking at. Wow, that sounds fascinating. Um, I've, I've, I've seen some of the articles that I think are part of that project, so that looks great. Stephen, what, what are you working on? I have a, I'm part of a, a group project with the Colombian Truth Commission. Um, in 2016, the Colombian state signed a peace agreement to with the FARC guerrillas to end over half a century of, of warfare. And the Truth Commission is an important part of that peace agreement. Um, we're looking at a war that happened in Colombia that became invisible. 
called the World of Vigerica. And because of press censorship at the time, just about very few people know this ever happened, but there was about an eight-month period when the Colombian state bombed an area of the country, in fact, with napalm. Um, and it was a kind of formative experience. It was, you know, in one of the early expressions of the Cold War in Latin America, and it had a lot to do with what happened later in the, in the war in Colombia. Um, so we're doing a lot of archival work. We're doing a lot of field work in the region where this happened. Um, we've been slowed down by the virus, of course, uh, especially since most of the people we need to talk to are well into their 80s and 90s. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're, we're making a, a publication and an exhibition about, about this history that has been, has been buried. That sounds that sounds really important, uh, and I'm I'm glad you're doing it, and I, I look forward to hearing more about it. So, thanks both of you so much for being on the podcast today. Uh, I thought that this was a great conversation, and I hope that you all do well in the future. Thank, Thank you, Alex. Yeah, thanks for having thanks, us. Alex. Um, and just to mention, if anybody's interested in getting La Batea, um, it is available through Red Hook Editions. So Red Hook Editions has a website, and and you can order the book through there. Thanks very much. Thank you.